Welcome to The Partial Historians. We explore all the details of ancient Rome. Everything from the political scandals, the love affairs, the battles waged, and when citizens turn against each other. I'm Dr. Rad. And I'm Dr. G. We consider Rome as the Romans saw it, by reading different authors from the ancient past and comparing their stories. Join us as we trace the journey of Rome from the founding of the city. Welcome to a brand new special episode of The Partial Historians. I am Dr. G and with me is Dr. Rad. Hey And also, very excitingly, we have Dr. Vicky Austin as well. Hello. 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 How are you? Good. Good. Very happy to be here. Excellent. Excellent. Well, we'll see if that continues throughout the course of the interview. (laughs) We are very thrilled to have Dr. Austin with us to have a chat about things to do with the Arapacus Augustae and also the Villa Livia. So these are two really key sort of architectural works that come out of the Augustan period. So I'm a bit of an Augustan fanboy which is problematic as a historian, one knows. Um, And so I'm thrilled to be here. Dr. Rad specializes more in Tiberius and uh, (laughs) may have some criticisms to add into the conversation. Look, you know, given the focus that we're we're taking, I don't know if I'm going to crap all over Augustus like I normally do. We'll just just have to see. (laughs) I mean, he does kind of open himself up for that a lot of the time. So I, I kind of love to hate Me him. Me too. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. In the same way that, you know, I I love Tiberius, but I can also see his flaws, you know? Yeah, but at least we're talking about Tiberius's mum. Oh, that's true. Yeah. yeah. The Freudian complexities, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Wait a minute. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So Dr. Victoria Austin holds an MA and PhD from King's College London. She has lectured in the classics at the University of Winnipeg and is currently the Robert A. Oden Jr. Postdoctoral Fellow for Innovation in the Humanities and Classics at Carleton College, Minnesota. Her research interests span the Latin literature of the late Republic and early empire, ancient Roman gardens and landscapes, race and ethnicity in the Asian world, the reception of classical myth, and the integration of digital humanities into the classroom. So we have a specialist in many areas with us today. Yeah, I like that. It's it's boring to just be interested in one thing. So I just like to, if I get frustrated with one topic, then I can give it up for a while and move to something else. That's my my general approach (laughs) to scholarship. And I think that's really useful and good because there's lots of ways in which the ancient world can be approached and taking a single focus might mean that you miss out on some of the really cool interconnections that are out there to be seen. Exactly. So Austin's monograph, Analyzing the Boundaries of the Roma Garden, Reframing the Hortus, is forthcoming in 2023 as part of the Bloomsbury Ancient Environment series. So welcome, welcome. 
Thank you. I feel like um, whenever anyone says my new position title, because it has the word innovation in, it's like I feel under pressure all the time to say something really exciting and innovative. So um, hopefully I will be doing I'm not going to lie. It sounds very impressive. <laughs> I know. It sounds great. I mean, it, um, it's, a long, it's a long title, but um, yeah, just started. So you know, hopefully there'll be innovation coming soon. <laughs> of that, there is no doubt. I think it's interesting to pair innovation with classics, though, because traditionally classics is considered very, maybe very particular in the way it approaches things, maybe less than innovative. And yeah. this is a really good spot to see it all coming together. I mean, like, well, no, there's room for growth here, guys. <laughs> Exactly. Um, it's potentially not a high bar to get over to <laughs> That's, the, that's the best bar. That's the best bar to be trying to jump over. Yeah, so, um, we can, yeah, we'll, um, we'll yeah. aim high with the innovation. <laughs> uh, I look forward to seeing how it progresses. <laughs> <laughs> so to get us started, we might start with some, uh, one of the really obvious questions perhaps, which is what is the Arapacus Auguste? Yeah, so essentially it's a big monumental altar kind of mini complex. It's um, made up of a central marble altar and then that altar is surrounded by four walls and it has kind of steps going up one side and there's also kind of an entrance past the steps and then you can also exit the other side. And Yes, it's an altar, but it's probably most famous for what's depicted on the outer friezes. So, you know, people tend to forget that it is a sacred altar complex and instead they focus a lot on it as a piece of artwork because it has these fantastic exterior friezes that show all of these kind of mythological and also imperial images that are really designed to place Augustus at the center of pretty much everything. It's like, I am, I am the chosen one. I have, you know, there's images of Aeneas, there's images of Romulus and Remus, Venus, um, the kind of mythical Roma. And then you have this procession of all of these senators and the imperial family. And it's really designed as this very kind of monumental statement of Augustan power. And the whole kind of concept of the altar as well, Arapakis means altar of peace and it kind of gets to the heart of that Augusta message of he's very, very keen to say, you know, I've closed the doors of the temple of Janus and, you know, we have no war anymore, but it's kind of peace born out of military victories. Mm. So this altar complex was awarded to him by the Senate as a kind of commemoration for the fact that now Rome has this peace, but obviously peace is maybe an interesting Thing to commemorate when actually it's the result of all of these kind of military successes and, and a very kind of powerful statement. Absolutely. So the exterior of the Arapacus Auguste is dominated in the lower register by panels known as the Acanthus Friezes. So when you visit the Arapacus, these Acanthus Friezes dominate your perspective as a viewer. What is it that makes these friezes special in terms of the flora that's depicted on them? Yeah, so this is kind of my primary focus, really, these lower friezes, which goes against, in some ways, the kind of traditional approach to this altar complex, because as I said, the kind of upper registers have all of these very obviously political, imperial, uh, dynastic images of Augustan power. 
But for me, the lower freezes are doing more of the same, but I think it's in a more subtle way. And for me, what's really interesting is maybe taking a step back and rethinking about this division between kind of figural sculptural reliefs and then what's traditionally been seen as more ornamental or kind of it's just pretty flowers at the bottom for you know it doesn't mean anything but I I think more and more it's kind of widely accepted that these floral friezes can really contribute to that Augustan message and what we see with these friezes like it wraps around the entire um, kind of bottom register of the altar and it's not just a random array of flowers you know they're they're very purposely picked and they're all designed to kind of put forward particular kind of augusta messages you know the acanthus itself this as a plant is a plant characterized by it loses its leaves and then it kind of re re-emerges um so that idea of rebirth is really kind of central to augustus's new rule in general and that's kind of visually represented on these friezes where you have a central acanthus flower and then it kind of blooms out and spirals and transforms into all of these other flowers and plants and it's kind of this magical fantastical um abundant display so for me it's really cool because it it's not just that ornamental aesthetic decoration. You know, there's a lot to be said about what's going on with all of these plants. I think. Yeah, no, look, I can't believe until I read your article that I hadn't really thought of that. I definitely in the past have focused entirely on the people. I'm like, people, let's focus on what the people <laughs> need because people yeah. need people. And I yeah. completely ignored the flowers, at not thinking about the fact that if you're chiseling something into marble and sculpting something, you probably did pick it on purpose. You probably didn't go, yeah. no, I want Aeneas, I want Romulus, I want all the members of the Imperial family and then just whatever. Yeah. Just, just whatever takes your fancy. <laughs> and I mean, it's it's not to say, you know, that kind of acanthus ornament, it was a popular ornament at the time. We see it on lots of yeah. things and, and it can be kind of purely, you know, decorative. But the fact that, I mean, one, this is on this monument, there's more of it than in anywhere else yeah and actually it like it actually dominates your view and when you think about where the Arapakis was in the campus martius and the fact that you have these steps leading up to it actually the floral ornament is at eye level so that's the thing that you're probably going to kind of, it's going to catch your eye first yeah. so I think it's been really underestimated in the past I think not just how important it is on its own but it actually interacts with what's going on above with the people it, it complements what's going on it's not just merely decoration yeah well I think I think thinking about things spatially like that adds so many more interesting dimensions and it's easy to forget I think especially because we live where we do we don't actually get to experience these things all that often and so we're looking at them in books so we look at the the pictures of the different freezes yeah. but when we were doing an episode on children in Pompeii, it was really interesting to consider like the height level of things and how, you know, people yep. of different ages would have experienced Pompeii. And this is kind of a similar thing. It's about what hits your eye, what would you see? And again, I think Augustus is the master manipulator and there's no way he would ever leave anything to chance. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and another thing in terms of just how it would catch your eye very easy to forget that there would be so much color on this yes. monument and you know 
this is well documented now, but I think it, it's so easy to forget that the this monument would have been coloured and, you know, floral ornament, it's got to be probably very vibrant colours, you know, the the general impression is that obviously there's a lot of green probably on the very kind of blue background and then lots of other colors for the flowers so that's really going to stand out because i can't imagine that even the upper figural reliefs they're going to be much less plain just because of the subject matter you know it's a lot of members of the imperial family and senators in togas it's not it's not going to have that same kind of vibrancy as seeing this kind of bright green and blues on the bottom and as i said it's at eye level so and as you you rightly said he doesn't do anything by no. chance so i think <laughs> you know this is this is not something to be ignored no definitely not um and, and that's exactly it i mean my in, in spite of the fact that my students hate black and white when we're looking at things from modern history. When it comes to Rome, they still really can't get their head around this idea of the colour. And when they see things colourised, they absolutely hate it. They're like, why can't it just be like an Ikea store where everything's just like white and beige? It's so classy. But yeah. I mean, neutrals are very in right now as well. So Yes, um, exactly. I don't think it's actually helped by how it's displayed in the museum currently as well, because it's this very stark kind of neutral, very cubic building with all of this glass, which I think, again, it's all these clean lines and everything's very neutral. So that that adds to that sense of, well, it wouldn't possibly be this bold, vibrant colour. So... Yeah, I think that's something really important. And I forget that a lot too. I have to kind of constantly remind myself that the colour would be an added element to to how we kind of think about it and also the experience of walking up to it and what you would see and what would stand out to oh, you. Oh yeah, no, it, it is a struggle because we've been absolutely used to thinking of the Romans as being classic, classy, means white, yeah. you know, white columns, all that kind of stuff, white <laughs> tablecloths. <laughs> Whereas really it's more like, you know, walking into like a Versace fashion house. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, you only have to look at their wall paintings in Pompeii to know that, you know, everything was very colorful. Like they didn't, their their walls weren't neutral. So like, why would their monuments be? That's, yeah. I think there's a real sense in which as they progress with our understanding of the Arapakas, you do get to see some of that color a little bit more often but they kind of do it as like a special event. And so I was like, every time I get to go to Rome, which is not that often, but when I do, I, it's one of the places that I always go, regardless as like, doesn't matter how many times I've been there, it's on my to-do list. And seeing the projection of the color onto the face of the stone, it really changes your whole concept. Because they do have some very sort of subtle colorization off to one side where they're like, this is what it might've looked like. And it's all pastels and stuff. And you're like, that's cute guys. Yeah. Um, but then you do the VR experience and it's all like in your face and it's highly saturated and you're yeah. like, oh my God. And it's like, and you can't get away from those lower freezes. Like the plant life really comes out at you. And not just because it's at eye level, but because the colors are so striking as well. Yeah, and this is why in my work, and I know we're going to speak about this, I have tend to compare or use as a point of comparison between the Arapakis, not other kind of monumental um, pieces, but instead garden paintings, because that also gives you the colour. And so it, it helps you, I think, envisage maybe 
the impact of the color. And I think that's a useful reference point rather than just comparing to other marble ornaments, which again, if you're comparing kind of the marble to marble, it's easy to lose the impact of the floral and instead you focus on the figural instead. But I think when seen from this perspective of, in, you know, in conjunction with more garden paintings, wall paintings, I think that's when it really becomes obvious what's going on and the purpose of the freezes, these lower freezes. Well, that's given me the perfect segue. Speaking of garden paintings, <laughs> what is the garden room at Livia's Villa, otherwise known as the Villa Ad Galinas? Yeah, so Livia is Augustus's wife and she has this villa just outside of Rome. I suppose we'd call it the suburbs. Um, so it, it's kind of close enough, but it's not it's not a coastal villa. It, it's kind of just a little bit outside of central central Rome. And in the underground kind of rooms of this villa, we have this amazing 360 degree kind of garden room experience. Um, it's a floor to ceiling you know, 100% wraparound painting in this one room dominated by this garden painting. And, you know, it's seen as the kind of garden painting par excellence. You know, we have lots of other examples, but the fact that it's it's not just one wall, it's this complete room, you know, you step in and, and I love the um in the museum that you go to now they've kind of recreated it as a room so um you get that whole sense of the experience you walk in through this open archway just as you would in these underground apartments and then suddenly it hits you and you're just surrounded by all of this color so it's a really special painting just in the sense that, you know, we have this entire room and we can reconstruct it, but also the location of the villa too has its own significance for the Augustan regime. And thinking about the significance of plants as well, this villa was said to be the kind of location of a, of a miracle to do with Livia and Augustus. You know, this is where we get the Ad Galenas um, idea from. So it was said that when Livia was um, just about to marry Augustus, as happens to everyone, she's just sitting there having dinner <laughs> and a bird comes along and drops a sprig of laurel in her in her oh. lap, you know, totally legit. Um, <laughs> Absolutely, 100% happened. Um, and so then she was told, you know, well, you should plant this sprig of laurel. And it was seen as this auspicious sign of her marriage um, to Augustus, which would no doubt have been controversial because she was pregnant with good old Tiberius at the time. And that's not Augustus's biological child. So, you know, it did them some favors to have this kind of auspicious bit of laurel, which is associated with the god Apollo dropped into her lap. And it was said that she then planted this sprig of laurel and it blossomed into this big grove. And from this grove, Augustus and then all the following members of the Julio-Claudian family would take laurel from that grove and make their triumphal crowns. So we have the villa as a whole is kind of seen as this special place associated with sacred laurels. And then we've got this big garden painting which features a lot of laurel as well um in in the basement essentially of her house yeah i think this is um leads us very nicely into thinking about like some of the trees that are depicted in this space so obviously there's going to be some yeah. laurel in here but there's, it's yeah. not the only tree that gets to make a feature and so i'm interested in like the significance the various trees might hold 
um, when thinking about how Augustus is striving to connect his rule to Rome's past in particular. So you've already mentioned that connection to Apollo through the laurel, but I imagine there's going to be some other symbolism coming through as well. Yeah. So laurel, unsurprisingly, is pretty much everywhere in the garden painting. Um, it's shown it in all of its forms. So we have it in small shrubs, in trees, um, and obviously that's a real connection to Apollo, which also in turn reaffirms Augustus's connection with Julius Caesar because Julius Caesar used the laurel as his own kind of personal symbol um, as triumphatores. But in each wall of the garden room, there's kind of a central tree um, that kind of dominates the foreground and this is kind of a focal point on each wall. And one of them is an oak tree. And if we take that combination of oak and laurel together, these two trees were said to kind of have a really important role on the day when the then Octavian was given the name Augustus that he took on. So it was it was said that um, he he was given the right to wear a Corona Civica, which is a, another special crown made of leaves. And traditionally it's given to um, a Roman citizen that has kind of saved the life of another citizen. So it was seen as he's saving Rome, um, he's saving us all. And then the laurel on that day, he was given the right to put two laurel trees outside of his house. Now, traditionally, two laurel trees were put outside a lot of religious buildings. So you've got this combination of he's kind of saving the people of Rome. And we've got, again, another connection to the kind of sacred past. He's kind of mirroring what would happen in the past with sacred buildings on his own personal residence. And this symbol of the two trees would become so synonymous with him that we even have coins where instead of it actually saying Augustus, it's just the two trees. So people knew that these trees were, were symbolic of him. So we've got the oak, we've got the laurel, we also have a pine tree and a palm tree. And the palm tree, there's another, you know, handy anecdote about Augustus that 100% true. <laughs> uh, so it was said that um, a palm tree kind of miraculously sprung out of the ground. Again, another sign of the rebirth of the state. And then it was said that he then bought that um, palm tree inside his inner courtyard of his house. And then that helped an oak tree that had kind of been withering away. That then kind of came back to life with this palm tree as well. So all of these central trees are clearly, well, I kind of see them. They're a reminder of all of these key stories that Augustus used. And it's interesting, he kind of weaponizes or yeah, I say weaponizes um, the, these ideas. It's not just, yeah, uh, there's thought behind it. So he's kind of weaponizing these connections between trees and kind of gods, but then he's putting himself and inserting himself into that narrative. So now it's not just a link between Laurel and Apollo, it's Laurel, Apollo, Augustus, and those three are together. So he's kind of inserting himself into a traditional 
religious connection, I think, between particular trees and then his own political narrative. Oh, wow. I, ma- I managed to make that through that without gagging, Dr. G. <laughs> Augustus is sickening. <laughs> I think it's kind of clever because it's like you think about it, like the, the symbols that resonate the most are the ones that have the oldest connections. And yeah. nature is essentially where those connections start and you see this with many ancient sort of religious sort of like and ritual thinking as it it sort of develops it comes from the landscape and for augustus in this time of a much more sort of monumental rome than it has been for hundreds of years at this point to go back to that symbolism I think might suggest that it is uh, maybe dangerously (laughs) i've never disputed that yeah i think (laughs) i think he's he's tapping into those very deeply the very deeply rooted sense in the roman world of this kind of connection to yeah agricultural um spaces and people and also you know pliny the elder has this very um cool passage in the natural history where he says that the trees were the first temples of the gods and then from those trees you would then start building monumental architecture around it and actually make it into these enclosures so you know for me that's kind of what he's doing with the Arapakis because he's got his own altar or sacred space there and he's inserting trees or or plants or that botanical imagery so kind of really going back to that very deep-seated kind of agricultural basis, I think, in Roman religion and kind of how they identified as a people. You know, a lot of their, you know, old-time figures, you know, Cincinnatus and all this kind of stuff, it's like they're working the land and they're there and this is good. Um, So I think he's kind of tapping into that, which is, um, as you said, very clever. I think he's got his own take on the idea of greenwashing. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, thinking about uh, all this natural stuff that you're talking about, it leads in nicely to our next question, which is in your work, you also discuss Augustus's creation of public gardens as being part of this deliberate policy that he's following. So if we understand Augustus as shaping Rome, not just as this city of marble to steal a bit from Suetonius, but as a city that integrates buildings with things like living sculptural forms and green spaces, how does this enhance our reading of the depiction of gardens and foliage that we see on structures like the Arapacus? Yeah, so I think you have to, and one of the things I think is really important about the Arapakis is you don't want to think of it as just, like you said, these individual friezes that you look at a book and you think of it as almost a two-dimensional thing. Um, You want to try and put it back into the space. And I think that it works with the entire Campus Martius complex. You know, there's several descriptions of this area during the time and it and it really talks about how he almost made it into this kind of landscaped public park. And so you get this sense that the whole area is just a nice place to be. Um, you know, I, I think often when I read kind of more modern articles about city planning now, we've got, we're kind of recognizing this idea that you don't want cities to be just concrete and buildings. You actually need to put plants back into it. It makes it a healthy place. And, and you know, Horace actually talking about the gardens of Mycenas in one of his poems, he says, you know, this used to be this, you know, horrible graveyard and witches were here and now they've been banished. And it's like a healthy place and people enjoy going there. 
And so I think Augustus kind of, he wants the big monumental pieces, but he also, again, wants to tap into those ideas of there's this green space, you want people to enjoy the spaces. And he really followed Julius Caesar in this and a bit Pompey the Great as well, this idea of having these public spaces where yes you know who has provided the space again so it's public but it's kind of been given to you this idea of public benefaction and i think it's with these public spaces they with the green space in particular i think they feel maybe the most free because they're like physically open so you can kind of enjoy that and enjoy the surroundings Whereas something like the Ara Park is like, you know, you're not going to be going like in there for for an actual ritual. You know, that's barred off from everyone else. But you can enjoy the whole idea. You know, I, I kind of think of it as it's like a big public park and you're you're walking around. You're like, oh, there's one monument. There's another. And you can kind of make a day of it. And there's this idea that he wants to connect I think he wants to connect with the people in these kind of, they're very clever, but subtle ways. So this idea that you're opening up the city, it yes, there are these big impressive monuments, but you can be a part of that in these kind of wider landscaped spaces. Yeah, and definitely considering the fact that for a lot of Romans, it's easy to forget that they would have been living in really small, dark, dank sort of places and therefore probably would have wanted to be outside of their actual living quarters as much as possible. Exactly. Like they're not, you know, when we think of, say, houses in Pompeii, these elite houses, they have all of these nice garden spaces, these interior courtyard gardens. People living in Rome, they're living in these cramped apartments. Again, I think it's in Pliny the Elder. He talks about, you know, maybe if you're lucky, you know, you have like a little window garden. So I think he's talking people have interpreted that as like a little window yes. box. Um, and I think Marshall also says about, you know, people have no space anymore for gardens in the city of Rome. So there's definitely this idea that he's giving people something that they can't have in their day-to-day yeah. lives. And again, that's a very clever form of benefaction because yeah, he's not there every day, but just the fact that if you go there, you know, oh, he's allowed this to happen. And then you're surrounded by buildings like the Arapakis, which very obviously are Augustan. And you're like, oh, there's another reminder that he kind of allowed us to be here. So yeah, very, very clever. It's interesting, isn't it? Because it's like um, that sense of like being in a public space and also noting that the, it is a political space. Yeah. So I'm thinking about for us in Sydney, Hyde Park is is a, both a beautiful garden and a really open sort of place. There's lots of spots you can go to within it, but it's also the place where there is an Anzac memorial. So, and it's a oh, really big yeah. building and they're doing something every day there and there's a pool that goes with it. And so it's like, that's a highly politicized part of that park and you can't help but know about it when you go through that area and you could avoid that part of the park, but if you don't, you will definitely encounter that and you'll have to think about it in some way. And I think you get a sense that Augustus is doing something similar here where it's like you can't avoid some of these buildings and you're going to encounter them and we'll see what happens to you and how you think about it at the end of that. And I think it's probably more clever because you are kind of, you know it's happening 
but you also don't know it's happening. So you you go thinking, oh, I'm just maybe enjoying the green space, but you can't fail to be influenced by what's around you. And this is, again, why with the Arapakis and that division between the kind of upper figural and then the slower traditionally seen as just decorative, I actually think that the so-called decorative, it's doing a lot more and perhaps it's even more effective because it's doing it in a subtle way. So you may think, oh, well, this this bit I'm looking at, it's not political, but actually it's so <laughs> even more dangerous. <laughs> yeah, so it's, it's like psychological. Yeah, he's really getting into your brain. <laughs> so to what extent do you think is it plausible to read the natural imagery that we have at play in the garden room and on the Arapakis as part of an Augustan project to suggest that his rule represented a sort of a fertile and abundant golden age for Rome? Well, I think it, 100%. I think it does. <laughs> to me, it does. That's, that's, that's very much the kind of um, argument I'm making um, in a lot of my work. And I think it's this idea of the abundance i think is is particularly interesting because that taps into the kind of general golden age metaphor that he he likes to play with this idea of everything if you look at the friezes of the arapakis and libya's garden room all the flowers are in full bloom at the same time so everything's great you know no one's having to work hard and I can tell you, as someone who kills a lot of plants, <laughs> it's not easy to get them to bloom. <laughs> you know, it's um, nothing, even if you're the best gardener in the world, you know, having everything be just right, that's fantastical. The artists also put flowers that would bloom at completely separate times. They're all in full bloom together. So, you know, it's kind of ignoring the rules of nature. So it really taps into, I think, what he's saying, that it's a very visual reminder of the fantastical because everything about, you know, it's natural, but it's really not natural at all, these plants. You know, on the Arapakis, you've got one plant transforming into another. Um, so it's a very obvious visual kind of transformation and clearly, you know, Acanthus doesn't transform into vines and into roses and stuff at the end, but it, it's just this kind of miraculousness. And I think, again, it, it's not maybe an obvious kind of this is a political statement, but just that overall sense of this is a great time. You know, we've had all of this war and now everything's happy and everything's blooming. And we see this reflected in poems like the Eclogues, where it talks about the kind of overabundance of all of the plants and the flowers. So, yeah, I think he's kind of tapping into that same messaging with this kind of stuff. And that's kind of what you looked at as being this idea of hyperfertile abundance, right? Yeah, and I think with the abundance that is being depicted on these two pieces of artwork, and this links to what I was just saying about it's so abundant that it's not just that you've created, you're such a good gardener that things are at their best, but it's kind of outside of the natural time of things because everything is in full bloom at once. And so irregardless of those individual plant cycles and life cycles, you've got the best of everything all at the same time. So it kind of goes one step further than just, 
I've managed to cultivate something to the point of it being like the best. Now I'm creating like this completely fantastical abundance. And that's why I think that kind of hyper fertility I talk about in my work, because it it's not just individual plants doing their own thing. It's like I've created this so-called natural thing, but it's really outside of nature. We're, we're pushing it into the kind of fantastical or, you know, the marvelous. It's interesting because it sort of stands outside sort of seasonal representation as well. And it's like, and often that's something that the Romans are interested in and it it plays into everything about how they understand the calendar. And, and yet in this representation on the Arapacus, it's like, you don't get to sense, it's not like one side is winter, one side is autumn, things like that, which you might expect. It's like, it's all happening all the time. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Like there's no pause in this. And it's exactly the same in Livia's garden room. It's uh, everything's in full bloom at once. So you could never, you could never get this in reality. So it's completely beyond the realms of what is possible in, in a real garden. Mm. A big political statement, I, I think, is on the horizon. <laughs> I think so, yeah, because he's, he's basically saying, like, look, look what I can create or cultivate. And I think ideas of cultivation and kind of cultic, I mean, we do get those words from the same uh, from the same Latin stems. Um, this idea of the kind of growth and that fantastical i think plays in with the religious kind of aspect in in general and that kind of sacred like we we are so great that we're going beyond what is kind of humanly possible and again augustus therefore is inserting himself into this traditional connection between plants and kind of sacred groves and now he's saying like look i i too can create a kind of sacred grove because you know look at my sacred <laughs> grove it's the arapacus <laughs> so modest although yeah. it's, it's, it's interesting though when you're comparing those two places you know livia's villa and the arapacus yeah. because presumably a smaller circle of people would have seen livia's villa yeah. uh than then maybe could have experienced the arapacus yeah absolutely and i think that's why it's useful to for us and for me to be able to compare the two and draw these comparisons to help me understand what's going on in the Arapakis. Yes. But as you said, we do have to remember that the Arapakis, that's the kind of very public monument. Whereas Livia's garden room, clearly not everyone's going to dinner at the villa of Livia to begin with. And then the fact it's also in these kind of underground rooms as well, like you have to go through a very kind of uh, special set of corridors to get there. Like it does seem like it would be a very select Mm. audience that would see that. So you've got two very different types of audience, which is something that I want to, it's kind of frustrating with Livia's garden room because there's always that question of, well, who would have actually, who was this for? Like, is it it because she's like, I want, you know, it would be very self-indulgent if it was just for Augustus. Like, look how great I am. This is my my room. It's his man cave. It's his man cave where he goes to brainstorm. How am I going to use plants for evil next? (laughs) 
<laughs> exactly. So maybe I should I should um, suggest that yeah. in my in my next my next article. It's actually Augustus's yeah. man cave. No, yeah. actually, it reminds me a bit. Like this is going to be the most random reference, but this is what happens when you watch too much television. It reminds me a little bit of this episode of um, RuPaul's series AJ and the Queen, where <laughs> RuPaul, drag queen, goes to visit his girlfriend, and she has these ridiculous parties with um, all these other like rich people in the city that they're in. But then during the party, she she taps a few of the wives on the shoulder to go upstairs to her bedroom for like a private slumber party part of the socializing. And I'm kind of imagining Livia yeah. doing the same thing, being like, come yeah. on down. Yeah. Yeah. Come and see my garden yeah. room. <laughs> and there is, there is also some suggestion, although it's kind of up in the air, but Livia's villa is also where the very famous Prima Porta statue of Augustus yes. was found. And there is some suggestion, you know, what was it by the entrance to this garden room? You know, some people have posited that as well. So that feeds into this man cave idea. It's like, look, I've, I've, maybe it's not Livia's garden room at all. Maybe we should call it Augustus's garden room. And that's my statue. Yeah. Um... yeah. I'm looking pretty good. These are my plants. All the gods love me. (laughs) I love it. I love it. Some classic, some classic Augustan moments. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So taking this idea of this sort of like hyper fertile abundance, there's also this idea that you discuss called contained profusion. And I'm interested in how that's coming into play as well. Yeah, so I think the super interesting thing about both of these pieces of art is you kind of see them on your initial impression. And then when you look into the actual composition, you take a closer look, you realize it's a bit more complicated, as with many pieces of art, than you first thought. So with both pieces, your initial impression is wow, everything's as you said, everything's going on all at once. There's spirals, you know, everything's in full bloom. Everything looks fantastical. It's amazing. With Livia's garden room, there's some kind of subtle evidence of control in this kind of painting. So there are a couple of fences in the painting as well. So this idea of kind of bounding um, the plants in. And we do have a kind of nice, very neat kind of grass area at the front, which kind of balances out this idea of all of these fantastical trees in the background. Also, when you look closer at the trees, it does seem that they have been kind of pruned or trimmed into very nice shapes. So again, this idea of, yes, it's this abundance, but it's really all an illusion because it's been created in this way. Um, This idea that it just kind of spontaneously erupts. I think when you look closer, it's complicated a bit more in the garden room because we have this evidence of the kind of shaping and pruning of the various plants. And you also realize that there is general kind of artistic order to the composition with the balance between the kind of foreground and the background of the painting. Similarly with the Arapakis, initially you're kind of wowed by just the all-encompassing, it's kind of, you know, these huge freezes. But then when you take a step back, you realise that each of these panels is kind of surrounded by a very kind of unnatural geometric kind of border. And then it's obviously enclosed by the figural freezes at the top as well. 
And so you get this idea that, yes, it's abundant, but I talk about it being contained because on the Arapakis, it's kind of physically contained within the two freezes, um, within the freeze panels. And for me, I think this kind of taps into this idea that Augustus wants there to be this rebirth of the state. He wants there to be this regeneration but only to a certain extent, or there's there's a kind of right way to do this and a wrong way to do this. So when you think, oh yeah, we want everything to bloom and everything to be great, well, no, we actually want we actually want some control over this. So I think it's this it's this balancing act between he wants to kind of give the impression or illusion that everything is free flowing, overflowing, brilliant, wonderful, but actually there's this very clever control going on and i think we see this in many of the laws that he put in to do with kind of women's sexuality and this idea of you know encouraging children and you know no sex outside of marriage like this kind of idea and you know he famously kind of punished his daughter for not following these rules so there's the idea of there's a right way to be fertile I think, and that's kind of mirrored in these like sexual laws. And so he wants to give the impression of encouraging it, but only to a certain extent. So there's a there's a there's an appropriate amount of growth. I, think, for <laughs> I, I kind of like how there's always the inherent irony for Augustus about how his relationship with Livia came around, yeah. and and how that plays into this as well. Because it's like he's trying so hard to be so controlling, and yeah. I was like. But this guy, he's got some issues. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and this goes back to the to the miraculous um, event at Livia's villa. Like, he needs that story because when you think about it, like, he was marrying someone that got divorced and was pregnant with another man's child. Like, that goes against everything that, like, kind of legislatively he had put in. So he needed something to to make that, kind of divine auspicious sign. And I think it's very interesting that he just used the kind of plants to do that. It's fertile ground for appropriation. Well, that, that surely well, that's got well, to be well. part of the appeal of Livia. Like I like to joke that Augustus had like some sort of fetish for pregnant women, but, <laughs> but really, really, he probably was looking at her and going, right, she's elite and I know she can get knocked up. Exactly. So, yeah. <laughs> Well, and it was never the plan for Tiberius to actually be the oh, emperor. God, I, I mean, but, but we now know, we, you know, with hindsight, that's that's what he ended up becoming. So, so the kind of the omen with this laurel kind of takes on another life when we think, well, actually, it was all about little Tiberius was in her belly at the time. So. Poor Tiberius. In spite of the fact that I am a fan of his, I actually think his life would have been a lot better if he never became emperor. <laughs> Also with the Laurel Grove as well, um, again, this 100% really happened idea. Um, it was said that just before like the death of Nero, that Laurel Grove like withered away because it signaled like the death of the Julio-Claudian yeah. dynasty. So, you know, perfect timing. So all of these kind of plant tropes, they kind of continue on with this idea of the Laurel and the triumphal crowns, but it just wasn't working out for oh, Nero. People love those sorts of things still. I actually just watched the most recent episode of The Rings of Power and there is a city which has a story associated with it that when that city is in power and it's about to fall, that the leaves will fall off the tree that's in the centre. Yeah. So, it's, yeah, it's not like a... It's, it's an idea that we actually keep returning to in spite of the fact that there is a massive 
disconnect from nature for a lot of people in in the modern world. Yeah. And so I I just think it's really interesting, this kind of balance with both the Arapakis and Livia's garden room, you've got this tension between the kind of wild and the tame and the kind of natural and the unnatural, because you're giving this illusion that it's completely wild, which would be natural, but actually it's been tamed and that is unnatural. (laughs) But so he's kind of trying to walk a thin line there um, between those two. So um, yeah, very, and like I said at the beginning, you know, it's, it's subtle, but it doesn't kind of detract from what's going on in those upper freezes of the Arapacos. I think it's just kind of like complementing and enhancing and kind of maybe complicating, you know, it a, a little bit as well. And so I just think it makes it an even more interesting yeah. monument um, because there's so many figural freezes. <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't need to analyze another sculpture of men in togas. Like, I just don't. Oh, come on. Think of the fun. <laughs> and this toga is sitting yeah. like this. The drapery. Yeah. I'm like, but what about these swans that are pointing down at this acanthus? <laughs> I love it. I love it. So if we try and put maybe the Arapacus in a bit of context here, like we've been talking about, you know, what was outside of Livia's villa and that sort of thing. What do we know about the area that's around the Arapacus? Is there some sort of transition from garden to acanthus frieze that might be comparable to the way that trees were integrated into the exterior of Augustus's mausoleum? Yeah, so it's both yes and no is going to be my answer to that. So in very broad terms, as I've said, it's part of this Campus Martius Park, which is seen as this overall kind of mixture of the monumental and this landscaped Mm. park. So I do think we have that nice mixture going on. However, you know, in the immediate surroundings of the Arapakis, we think that it's pretty much kind of like paved stones, essentially. So... In that sense, there would be a kind of break from maybe the greenery uh, leading up directly to the monument, which I think, again, would maybe make the floral freezes stand out even more because you've kind of, you are surrounded to some extent by more um, artificial materials in the immediate surroundings. And then you've got like kind of bam, this big kind of floral reminder. So it's in that way it's different to for example the mausoleum of augustus which is close by and that actually had plantings like literally on it um so i think it's it's slightly less integrated on the arapakis but then i i suppose i would argue that maybe it's not because we have the floral freezes so is that seen as a kind of to me it's just a transference of what we've seen on the mausoleum but onto stone, like they're doing the same kind of thing, just in a different format. Yeah. And I think that's the sort of thing where that's the power of the marble in a way is as you can create that vision and it's, yeah. it becomes a static vision as well. So it's like the symbolism is always the symbolism that you want it to be. Whereas yeah. if you're relying on the garden that you've created to do that work, you're, yeah. you have less control over the seasonal elements of and it. So again, it, it kind of plays into that. Yes, you're you're going to have the nice kind of real greenery, but that is subject to the elements. It is subject to seasonal change. If you put it in a painting or it's in marble, it's frozen in time. It's that fantastical. So again, that's a level of control when we talk about profusion. It's all an illusion. It's not. It's not actually 
just spontaneous you know as you said you know it takes a long time to carve that marble uh, so so you know it's and it's not going anywhere so it's it kind of plays in with the idea of the eternal augustan peace as well this idea of you know we're stamping this monument with things that it lasts forever like this idea of you know his victories they're annually recommemorated, you know, there's meant to be a sacrifice every year. There's kind of this continual reminder of the original messaging that's then reinforced on a daily basis by the freezes on the outside. You hear that, Dr. G? It's all an illusion. That, that, that's, that's, the quote, that's the quote that we're taking away from this about Augustus. <laughs> Augustus is all yeah. fake. Yeah. Fake news. <laughs> Ouch. Ouch. I feel like the race guste would have something to say about that, but uh, (laughs) we won't touch on that subject for now. Let's say, as a wrap-up question, let's say we're going to Rome. That's the big dream. And we're in the garden room or we're at the Arapacus. What kind of details and ideas would you encourage us to focus on and think about when we're in those spaces and seeing them as a viewer? So I'll start with Livia's garden room because I think it's quite easy as a viewer to kind of transport yourself back to the ancient world because it's been the room has essentially been recreated in the museum like the arched doorway to enter the room is designed to be like the exact same size as the arched kind of open doorway so you get this real sense of and I think it's really nice when you're about to enter the room to kind of pause because you can see a kind of glimpse of an initial tree like through the open archway. And so you kind of getting this hint at what's going on. And then when you step in, there's like this wow moment that you realize it's not just the wall in front of you, but it's actually all around. So I think, you know, as someone who has spent a lot of time sitting in that room, take your time sitting in the room. And I think you want to, with both of these monuments or or, um, representations, I think you have, your initial perception, but then you want to take that time to kind of think about the individual elements of the composition, because I think you kind of get a different flavor each time you look at it. I'm always noticing something different every time I look at just the images of these places. Um, So I really, I really just with Livia's garden room would say, you know, have that moment of pause before you enter to kind of get that transition between what you see as you're approaching versus the experience actually being surrounded by it. With the Arapakis, I think the thing that I would say, and we've already kind of spoken a bit about this, is don't forget the colour. Because I think because of the museum it's in, and I, I was thinking about it before this question, I think it kind of does it a disservice. And I know that other people have issues with the museum that it's that it's in but I think it's quite hard to imagine it in its original surroundings because it's a very very stark almost like modernist museum that it's in and I think it take it's a lot harder to kind of imagine its original surroundings compared to Livia's garden room so I think you can take in everything for the individual monument but you've got to try and imagine it not in this stark clean line space but instead as part of a big park so you kind of want to imagine that you're you're in this big park and you've kind of been interacting with people um and and yeah try and put them back in their original location i think is is a nice way to appreciate them on that level wouldn't it be cool if they could 
make a duplicate, like a replica, and put that in a green yeah. space in Rome so that people yeah. could actually yeah interact with it maybe we should apply for funding to do that (laughs) copyright copyright yeah we will i'll I'll contact someone please it could be like a we could get a modern sculptor involved and they could re-sculpt the arpakis and paint it and everything yeah i just think um and and more and they need to do more of the light shows the vr because i think yeah like you said Shouldn't just be a special occasion. Yeah. Be I was going to say, it, it was on like one day a week in the evening. Yeah. And I was like, guys, this needs to be all day, every day. Yeah. Well, you know, it is It is the 10th anniversary of our podcast next year. So I think we apply based on the fact that Dr. G's favorite emperor of all time is Augustus. I think Rome should throw a celebration in her honor <laughs> and create an Augustan theme park so that she can be happy forever. <laughs> it would be interesting to try and create the Campus Martius, like, whole yeah. bolus somewhere. And it's like Rome has a lot of garden space available and it's just yeah. a matter of talking to the right people. <laughs> yeah. And, and well, now it's also cool because, like, they've reopened the mausoleum, mm. which for ages I, I need to go back so that I can, I can then get a sense of how those two would work together. Yes. Um, that's very exciting. Yeah, definitely. Yes, that's the dream. I haven't been able to be back since it opened. I'm blaming the pandemic. (laughs) Yeah. I think I'm hoping to go next year. So fingers crossed. Likewise. Maybe I'll see you there. (laughs) Yay. (laughs) We can have an Augustan party. (laughs) I won't come, but. (laughs) (laughs) That's disappointing to hear, but understandable. I'll come, but I'll be like moody and standoffish, which I think is very in the vibe of Tiberius. (laughs) Yeah. Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, uh, Dr. Austin, thank you so much for spending this time thank you so much this is great it's been really good to chat and yeah oh i feel like i've got like a whole new vision to think about when it comes to these spaces Yay. <laughs>